Last week, I started talking about violence, heroism, and gray, morally neutral characters in speculative fiction. Today, I'd like to do a deeper dive and talk about the difference between violence and warfare in speculative fiction on today's Project Shadow. Hello everyone, how are you doing today? My name's Charlie, you might know me better as sci-fi fantasy writer C.E. Dorset, especially if you're reading my new book, Crucify My Love, which should be available everywhere. Today's going to be a rather deep dive into this subject of violence and warfare, but before we get into that, if you haven't already, please take a moment to like this podcast in whatever app you're listening to me on, it really does help out a lot, it tells the algorithm to share the podcast with more people. The more people that listen, the bigger the community, the bigger the community, the better the chance we will interact with each other. And after all, that's why I do this. So thank you to everybody who has already done that. So first, I want to begin by defining some terms, because I personally like and agree with Mike Regnetta's definition of violence and think it's the one that we need to use in this discussion. So, as far as I can tell, back in the episode of PBS Idea Channel, titled, Is a DDoS, um, Is a DOS Attack a Weapon? Mike derives his definition of violence from a description of what violence means in theater from Anne Bogart trying to make sure I'm sourcing this because this is not my original idea, but it's a really good definition. So what is that definition of violence? The potential, the potentially aggressive removal of an actor's choice in a situation. So for those of you who are not a fan of the old PBS idea channel on YouTube, definitely go back. It's all there. Mike doesn't do the show anymore, which is sad, but it is a really good show and it is still good to rewatch even now. So highly recommend it. But let's unpack what this means. What does the potentially aggressive removal of an actor's choice in a situation mean? First of all, most laws are violence. Almost all laws are violent. It is the aggressive statement that if an actor does X, then the f following punitive action will be taken. Okay? So when we say that there is a law against murder, that law against murder is actually a violent act on behalf of the state to remove the option of murder from the populace. And I would say that that's not a bad use of violence. And I wanted to start there because I think violence gets coded in this place where all violent actions are immediately bad. Most violent actions are bad. I will definitely agree with that. But as we will discuss, not all violent actions are bad. 
It's a really rough place to be arguing from. But when we're talking about fiction, we have to be very specific about the terms that we're using. So if law enforcement is an act of violence, well, technically, employment is an act of violence because your employer has the potentially aggressive ability to remove your choice as to whether or not you keep your job, what you can do while you're at that job, what have you. Now, I hope that I don't have to say this, but I am not equating, equating law and basic law enforcement of, you know, don't steal, don't kill, don't embezzle money from your company with, with actually killing, stabbing, and what have you. I'm not making an equivalency there. Violence, like everything, occurs on a spectrum from what we would consider good violence to acceptable violence to bad violence to gratuitous violence. These are all things that occur on a spectrum. Anytime in a story there is an aggressive removal of choice from a character because of the situation that they are put in, that is an act of violence against that character. Well, I, I want to start there because I've had this discussion with a lot of people who are, like myself, trying to find a way of writing more non-violent fiction. And the problem with that is once you create conflict in a story, then this definition of violence can almost always be invoked against the situation that the characters find themselves in. So I don't necessarily believe that you can write nonviolent fiction, like purely nonviolent fiction. Now, if you are going to restrict your idea of violence only to physical actions that cause harm, yeah, you can do that fairly easily. A lot of children's stories are nonviolent in this way that the character's actions do not bring about actual physical harm to another person. But I don't think that that is a proper definition of violence. I think that is a limited ver version of violence or understanding of violence that allows some people to kind of wave, hand wave more psychological forms of violence and more cultural and social forms of violence that still exist within a story. So that's why I'm using the broader definition here. The problem with warfare narratives, as they generally portray themselves in speculative fiction, is not that violence is seen as a remedy. Because, again, if you're fighting Nazi Germany, and let's be honest, so many of these stories, the villains are an analog for Nazi Germany because it's the one very clear-cut example of, ooh, bad must destroy. Because ooh, bad must destroy. Um, so, yeah, there, I, I don't see a nonviolent solution to the problem of Nazi Germany. But the problem with a warfare narrative is to say that physical violence, 
physical hostility and physical violence is the natural state in which people live rather than this broader sense of violence, which is true. We live in a violent society. We will always live in a violent society as long as we have rules and people capable of enforcing those rules. Violence will be a part of that society. What we have to do as people and as writers and as fans of media is make distinctions between the types of violence that are used and whether or not it is appropriate. So to go to my beloved Star Wars, we see Yoda lay out a very clear understanding of when physical violence is acceptable as a Jedi. The force is used for knowledge and defense, never to attack. Never to attack. This is the Jedi definition of nonviolence. It is not that we don't fight, it's that we do not bring about the potentially aggressive removal of an actor's choice through the use of the force. If they've already chosen to attack us, we are allowed to use the force to fight back. This creates limits on what is acceptable for someone who wants to call themselves a Jedi and clearly shows how Darth Vader falls well outside of those parameters because he is not practicing in accord with the Jedi understanding of nonviolence. I hope you're following. This is a really tricky subject to talk about. So what about all of our stories of perpetual warfare? From the Lord of the Rings to the Star Warses, and I would even throw, unfortunately, Star Trek into this because it's gotten into the state of perpetual warfare. We have the Stargates, we have the Expanse, Harry Potter, I can go on and on and on and on and on and on and on. Warfare is a natural background state in all of these stories. The problem with considering warfare natural as opposed to merely violence being natural is that war is the active attempt to remove life and property through the physical act of violence from others. That should not be seen as natural, normal, or just the way things will always be. This is one of the things that really set the original series of Star Trek and The Next Generation apart from most of the shows that follow and the thing that Deep Space Nine wrestles with most. Warfare, at its heart, must include the othering of some group or people. If there are not us and them, there cannot be war. This is impossible. It really is. You cannot have a war of we versus us. That doesn't happen. You have to other the other side. You have to make them different and distinct from you. Some do this by literally, in Star Trek's case, making them other species. 
You have the war with the Klingons, which the Organians deal with. You have the war with the Romulans, which the Romulans dealt with. You had the war with the Borg. You had the war with the Dominion. You had the war with the weird space thingy robot thing from Discovery thing. You had the war with the Mirror Universe, which happens twice. That basic othering normalizes the idea that it's okay to have an us versus them rather than a we mentality. This is, like I said, one of the things that really distinguishes the original series of Star Trek from everything that followed it, though you see its DNA in The Next Generation and Deep Space Nine. When you're dealing with a war, the Organians show us that the violence that the Klingons are doing is no different from the violence that the Federation is doing, because they are merely arguing over ideology. One is a democratic ideology, the other is a totalitarian ideology, but both are willing to engage in the same violence to achieve their aims. And the Organians can't understand how a philosophical argument has come to blows. At what point should a philosophical argument be allowed to bring about the potentially aggressive removal of an actor's choice in a situation when it becomes ideology. And this is what you see the Organians fighting against. This is what you see the original series railing against. When a philosophy becomes an ideology, then the easiest and preferred method of maintaining it is through the removal of choice of others who do not share it. The Borg do not ask if people want to be assimilated. Their ideology states that they are the supreme life form in the galaxy, if not the universe, and to maintain this supremacy, they will assimilate everyone. They don't provide a choice. Now, imagine a slightly different Borg that would arrive at a planet, and on first contact, we are the Borg, we are a technological-biological hybrid that are seeking to perfect ourselves, we are seeking ultimate perfection. If any of your people wish to become part of our perfection and work towards our ultimate perfection, let them come to one of our processing centers and be brought into the collective. Now, if the Borg had that mentality, they are not a threat. That is a philosophy. They philosophically are holding to this idea that they are working towards perfection, and they would then be offering that perfection to others. They're also not othering the people that they are encountering. The basic flaw in the Borg logic is that we are superior because we are striving for per perfection. Others are not striving towards the same level of perfection as we are, and they're not using the same means as we are. Therefore, those others should not be afforded the choice as to whether or not they are brought into our perfection or allowed to evolve and change according to their own 
thoughts and ideas. The removal of choice is the problem that the Borg have. Most people would leave them alone if they were just letting people decide whether or not they wanted the cybernetic implants, whether or not they wanted to become part of the collective. And while you think that that may be an irrational idea, I can tell you if the Borg showed up, there would be people that would want to become a part of that and would bring their biological diversity into the Borg, which would aid in the perfection of the species as they saw it. And they would be able to enter into cultural exchanges with other civilizations, which would benefit them in their technological advancement instead of having to steal it, instead of having to remove choice from the actors. It's the basic act of othering that makes the Borg dangerous. This is seen quite clearly in the Dominion War in Deep Space Nine. All solids are a threat. So the way we handle this is through forced domination of them. We remove all choice from all of the people that are not us, so they can never be a threat to us. It's the use of this ultimate form of violence, the removal of choice that makes these people dangerous. And is actually what's being combated in these stories. Especially when you look at the stories of the Borg. The Borg have a very strong storyline that talks about free will and the free Borg that are trying to do the Borg differently. We see this through the collective that Lore ends up taking over, and we see this with the group of dreamers that Seven of Nine gets involved with. When stories perpetuate this idea that war is inevitable and war is a constant and permanent state in which a planet, a civilization, or even the galaxy finds itself in, what it's saying is there will always be us and there will always be them. And they are dangerous to us because they are different from us. We cannot trust them. We cannot coexist with them. And thus, they must be destroyed. Now, most fiction puts those words into the mouth of their villains. This is pretty much the motto of the Empire and the First Order in Star Wars. But... Allowing that philosophy to exist unchallenged is problematic. I'm not saying that we should never write stories that take place with, within a war, or that warfare cannot be part of our stories. What I'm trying to say is, if you see what has been happening with fiction because of our obsessive need for conflict in story, and all conflict is rooted in violence, as we've discussed earlier in the episode, well, warfare is the easiest way to set up that violent situation so we can have our action stories. But the ramifications of that violence, the allowing ourselves to say that, well, some people will always be other, some people will always be different, and that difference will always make them dangerous. See, whenever you try to make anything permanent, that's where trouble seeps in. You're actually endorsing racist ideologies by doing that, even if your purpose is to argue against that. 
George Lucas very clearly did not believe in anything that the Empire stood for, but by allowing the state of perpetual warfare to exist within the Star Wars franchise, and not allowing the stories to evolve and change into other forms of conflict, well, there's us and there's them. There's always us and them. And the few stories we get that show that there are some not terrible people within the the Empire or within the First Order don't matter because they are still the other. And it's that otherizing that perpetual warfare really makes problematic. I hope you enjoyed this episode. This was more of a deep dive into this question. I want to spend more time talking about this, especially as I'm working on some of my own fiction and trying to figure out what ethically to do in telling these stories. I think it's a really complex situation that requires complex answers. So definitely let me know what you think. You can do so either by going down into the show notes and clicking on the voice message that will let you send me a short voice message. Keep it clean so I can use it on the show. I would love to hear what you think about this. You can also hit me up on Twitter and Instagram. I'm CE Dorset on both of those platforms, though I am much more likely to... I'm, I'm on Twitter way too much, so yeah. Um, if you've got a buck you can throw my way, it really would help out a lot. It's kind of how I'm hoping to do everything going forward. You can either sign up and join the project via Patreon or through the community support tab. The difference between the two is the people on Patreon occasionally get stuff. Any support that you can provide would be greatly appreciated. And I just want to say thank you in advance for all that. If you don't have any money right now or you don't feel like joining the project, that's fine. Don't worry about it. But if you've know somebody that you think might like this podcast, please do share it with them. I understand it's a little bit different. It's a little bit strange, but that's who I am. And that's what I like doing. But thank you to everybody who shares the podcast. It really does help out a lot. There's a lot going on. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, don't forget to have the fun.